1942, during the Second World War and in the wake of Pearl Harbor, Japanese-American artist Ruth Asawa was 15 years old. She was working on her father's farm that he had owned and operated for 40 years. And one morning, he was arrested and taken by the FBI, not to be seen again for another two years. A couple of months later, Ruth, her mother, and her five siblings were also taken um, and sent to live in two horse stalls at the Santa Anita racetrack for a few months until they were relocated to Rower Relocation Center or internment camp in Arkansas. Asawa was incarcerated there as a teenager for 18 months until she relocated to go to college for a little while in Milwaukee. The reason why I'm beginning this artist's feature with this story from her life is because, first, it was an early experience, um, and secondly, it was extremely significant both personally and historically, um, and her response to this experience and what happened, I think, helps to paint a really solid picture of her strong personality and builds a foundation for the rest of the video. She is quoted as saying, I hold no hostilities for what happened. I blame no one. Sometimes good comes through adversity. I would not be who I am today had it not been for the internment, and I like who I am. It's always interesting to me to learn about these kinds of adverse experiences um, in people's lives, artists' lives, and see if I can catch a glimpse of how or if they sort of make their way into the works somehow. Interestingly, while she was interned there, um, there were other artists from the Disney studio who were also interned with her, and I couldn't find like solid evidence of this, but it's implied in many of the accounts that they were basically hanging out together and learning from each other early on. Whenever people talk about Ruth, um, they mostly always reference how much energy she had and just how she was able to go from sunup to sundown without really stopping at all. She's described as being a prolific artist, wife, mother, activist, and citizen of the universe. And, uh, had a thriving garden and social life as well. And so all of these things individually take an immense amount of work every day to maintain, um, as many of you know. And so to do all of them together simultaneously would take uh, an insane amount of energy. But she enjoyed her life a lot and found great satisfaction in all of these things. I think in Ruth's case, there's so much to unpack, but most importantly, I think that she just didn't seem to really give any attention or time uh, to anything that didn't interest her or bring her joy or satisfaction in some way, including stories of the past. Um, she had a very sort of stalwart and methodical thing about her, which definitely comes through in the works. A few of the images that I've already shown of Ruth were actually taken by famed photographer Imogen Cunningham, who also kind of had this vibe, who played a big part in Asawa's life. So in this episode, we're going to talk about the life and work of Ruth Asawa, uh, her relationship to Imogen Cunningham, because it was quite important, as well as go into her technique that she used for her wire uh, forms that we're all familiar with today at the end of the video. But before we go any further into the video, if you're finding this content interesting and you like it, hit the like button and subscribe to the channel because that will help YouTube know that this is good stuff to bring to other people. Since this channel is new, I have a ton of content planned for you guys and for this, this project, but I would love to hear from you if you have something specific that you want to learn about or some specific artist that you want to learn about. Definitely leave it in a comment down below. And I also love hearing when you guys like write in about your own specific experiences with these artists and their works. It's always very exciting to read those. So Ruth grew up as a Japanese immigrant child um, during a very difficult time to be Japanese in America. Um, and she went to school and worked on a farm for as many hours of the day as there were. The consensus between Ruth herself and her own children and um, 
all of the biographical accounts that I've come across is that she was a bit confrontational and argumentative as a child um, and maybe as an adult too, but that she would get in arguments with other children at school. So she was kind of sent off to do her tasks on her own. Um, she talks about this in the short documentary called Ruth Asawa of Forms and Growth by Robert Snyder um, and about her time sort of learning from Joseph Albers at Black Mountain College. She talks about all the stuff that we're going to talk about in this video pretty much in that documentary. Um, and it's very short. It's a fun watch if you have an opportunity to watch it, if you can find it. I actually have it on DVD, um, but it's great. It has great music and it's just very 70s. And um, yeah, it's a pleasure to watch. So I will link uh, the Amazon link to the DVD that I bought if you're interested in purchasing it. But I'm also going to add in a couple of clips into this video so you'll be able to catch a vibe. Only about a year and a half after she was released from the internment camp in Arkansas, Asawa found herself sort of in a playground of progressive creativity um, in 1946 at none other than Black Mountain College. Um, and as promised in the last Cy Twombly video, I'm going to do eventually a whole episode on Black Mountain, but it's going to be a beast and this is not the week for that. So, so stay tuned for that. I will be doing that eventually, but you'll get little tidbits here and there in, in each of these artists, uh, features on the way. By the time she arrived at Black Mountain College, it had been an operation for about 13 years, which was about half the time that it was, uh, open and the advisory board, you know, I, I kind of mentioned this in the in the last video, but um, there were so many big names on staff and on the advisory board, not just in art, but in the world. The advisory board of Black Mountain included uh, Carl Jung and Albert Einstein. So just to give you an idea, a lot of the people who were on staff um, at Black Mountain came from uh, places like the Bauhaus and just Europe in general, which was um, the avant-garde, the Bauhaus. Um, all these sort of movements that were happening in Europe, but of course during the war, they came to America, and that's why um, Black Mountain was was started with them. So to paint the picture of Asawa's education, which had a huge impact on her and, and her way of working for the rest of her life, one of the founders, John Rice, is quoted as saying, No courses were required, but students were expected to play a part in the school community by working on the farm, working in the kitchen, and even building school buildings and furniture at times. John Rice also reported that our central and consistent effort is to teach method, not content, to emphasize process, not results, to invite the students to realization that the way of handling facts and himself amid the facts is more important than the facts themselves. So in the Snyder documentary, uh, she says that her education there was basically the reason why she started doing what she started doing and started thinking the way that she started thinking about her work. Um, and sort of the main takeaway was learning how to take a material and in this case, paper, they used only paper at Black Mountain and to make it do something that it's never done before, uh, not impose brute force on it to make it do what she wanted it to do, but to kind of see where it wanted to go and then to guide it there. Um, so it's pretty easy to see how all of these early experiences, um, so far started to kind of take shape in the recognizable endless forms that we that we know of hers today. She also met her future husband, um, architect Albert Lanier, while she was at Black Mountain. And in that documentary, Imogen Cunningham says that 
uh, about their relationship, that they were two people that were together but completely free from each other because they both had work to do. In 1947, Ruth took a trip to Mexico where a craftsman there actually showed her how to weave wire egg baskets in a sort of um, traditional way. And it's unclear where in Mexico she was, though. I tried to find it and I couldn't, but... Um, with the lessons that she had learned at Black Mountain fresh on her mind, she was still going back um, after this trip to Mexico, I think. Um, she was there from 46 to 49, maybe. Uh, I'll, I'll change that and correct myself if I'm wrong. But with these lessons um, of form and process that she was kind of learning at Black Mountain fresh on her mind, it sparked her idea to start working with wire and, and use this looped wire technique that she eventually uh, kind of invented for herself. So at Black Mountain, Ruth had a couple of different teachers that really impacted her and her work for the rest of her life. And the first was Joseph Albers, again, from the Bauhaus, um, who I briefly mentioned before and in the Twombly episode as well. He had an impact on all of his students. We'll talk about him in the Eva Hess, Eva Hess um, feature. You know, there's a bunch of people who who really got a lot from him and his wife, Annie Albers. And the second teacher that had a great impact on her was Buckminster Fuller, otherwise known as Bucky. And she also talks about him in the documentary. Um, so Bucky is an architect and he would sort of make these mathematical forms and kind of come into the classroom and sweep all the students off their feet by using this magical language of the universe to create forms um, that would be kind of methodical in a way. Um, unconcerned by beauty, using like hairpins and random stuff that he could find. Um, and he was just more concerned with process and more concerned with mathematics. And if you look at his work, you can obviously see where this comes into play. But it was sort of through these teachings and these teachers and her three years at this school. And that created the way that she would work for the rest of her life. Because Ruth was a mother and she had so much work to do at home, um, she was an artist without a studio. And she worked in her house with her kids and just made it work. So she had many good artist friends from Black Mountain, and they all kind of encouraged her to pursue her work entirely at one point. She had tried to do different things here and there to try to make money or whatever, but um, eventually she committed to her work and so did her husband. And, you know, one of the people that encouraged her to do this was uh, the pioneering photographer Imogen Cunningham. So now let's get into her relationship with Cunningham. In 1950, so this is right after Black Mountain, Imogen Cunningham's son Randall introduced Ruth to Cunningham, and despite their 43-year age difference, uh, Sawa was 24 at the time and Cunningham was 67, uh, the two artists became instant friends, which is pretty adorable. Last year in 2022, it was amazing, I got to see a retrospective at the Giddy of Cunningham's work, and it was sort of laced by works of Asawa's. And just seeing their work together was really, really fantastic. And I also got to go to a talk, which I'll link down below if you're interested in watching it, um, with one of Ruth's daughters and Imogen Cunningham's granddaughter um, and the curator, Daniel Cornell, who I believe, don't quote me on this, but I believe he was responsible for getting Ruth's work into the permanent collection at De Young eventually. Um, far too late, in my opinion, but... But he sort of references that as well in the video. So again, it'll be linked down below if you want to watch it. But um, the video sort of goes into the long-lasting and deep friendship and sort of mentorship between the two. And if you don't know Imogen Cunningham's work, um, I mean, you've definitely seen some of the portraits she's taken, at least, you know, Frida Kahlo and, and 
people like that, like um, Alfred Stieglitz. She did portraits of some of the most well-known people in art history. So because they were friends, Cunningham was obviously constantly taking photos of Ruth. And so she's got all these sort of iconic images of her being taken along the journey. And um, yeah, Cunningham was kind of just like a mentor and a friend of Ruth. And they were two women who refused to choose between their work and their families. They both had families. Uh, Ruth had a really big family. She had six six kids. Yeah. Um, and I think they just bonded over that. They bonded over working, not taking no for an answer in terms of, you know, being a woman and having a family and having a garden and having a social life. And they just wanted it all and they had it all. Cunningham is the one that encouraged Ruth to use her maiden name, Asawa, in her work also, despite, you know, discrimination and that being kind of a strange thing to do in the 50s and 60s as a woman. Um, I don't think that Imogen Cunningham would have probably described herself as a feminist because it just doesn't really seem like her personality, but she very much was. And um, she was a kind of tell it like it is, uh, almost like I picture her like Fran Lebowitz a little bit, Um, just very like straight to the point. Um, And so the two of them got on well, since Ruth was also very non-fluffy. So this curator describes going to Ruth's house in this video and seeing all the beauty and the chaos of this artist without a studio um, and sort of being enamored, but also probably in shock because, you know, these sort of fancy curator types from New York with PhDs and whatnot are quite buttoned up. And Ruth was just like, this is what it is, man. I realized that they were mowing outside um, for quite a while. So um, apologies if you could hear that. Um, I had to leave for a bit and come back because it was so loud. And I'm wearing these because I want to be able to hear if I can hear it still because um, they're still doing it. So so she started to show in solo and group shows in San Francisco and New York, but she still wasn't like mainstream, even in the art world at this point. Um, she was still kind of coming up. And this was yeah, like 15 to 20 years into her career. So in the 1960s, like a lot of people, she became more focused on activism and she sort of used her artistic ability and her energy to work on community projects and projects that would impact not just her, but, you know, her, the neighborhood schools and the government of San Francisco. Um, So she was working often with children and in educational settings. And I think it's because the freedom in her own education kind of had such a deep impact on her um, that I think she wanted to share that. So she worked on a few uh, larger community-based projects and commissions um, like the Fountain in Ghirardelli Square and most importantly, the Garden of Remembrance in 2002, where she collaborated with landscape artists Asao Agura and Shigeru Namba. Um, and It was her idea to bring boulders from each of the 10 internment camps where Japanese Americans were interned and put them in this garden, the Garden of Remembrance. So after that, a couple of years later, um, 60 years after she began at at Black Mountain College in 2006, um, Ruth was finally given a major retrospective and a permanent place at the De Young in San Francisco. Um, So just like put that in perspective a little bit, you know, 60 years after you start, you know, you start, you realize that you're an artist, you start working, like, I'm talking to myself, too, because I think these days, uh, if you don't continuously put out work all the time, and feel like you're, you're leveling up every moment of every day, it sort of feels like 
you've lost touch and that's just not the case at all. These things are so long-term and it's a lifetime, right? Um, so now we're going to go a little bit into the materials. Ruth used very thin copper or galvanized steel wire to do the looping technique. Um, and galvanization is just a process uh, where it, there's a coating of zinc that's applied to the steel wire to prevent it from rusting. Um, and she just used a dowel. And I think the dowels um, differed in size depending on what size loop she wanted to do, but it was about a half inch or, or smaller. Um, and if she had to repair a piece, then she would use a crochet hook, but usually not. And wire cutters were only used at the very beginning and the very end of the piece um, so that the whole thing would be one continuous form, and that was kind of the idea. Again, the gauge of the wire probably differed from piece to piece, um, but it was usually around a 22 gauge of wire. And the rest of her method, I mean, you can very clearly see it if you study it, um, but the rest of the method is kind of, you know, on the DL because even though it's been taught in workshops and stuff like that by her daughters, like they don't want people posting it on the internet for obvious reasons. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's the basis of it though. It's, it's a sort of weaving technique with loops and, uh, copper or steel wire and a dowel. So in Snyder's documentary, she describes how each form would sort of start on the inside or not each of them, but some of them would sort of start on the inside and then the inside would kind of come out and be the outside. And that would make it a lot more interesting um, of, of a form. And I'm assuming like knitting, there's probably some sort of mathematical patterning um, and planning that took place uh, before she actually started to, to work. So, so yeah, that's it. It's pretty, you know, pretty simple, not easy, but simple. So yeah, by using this really um, kind of humbled material and then creating these, this masterpiece of, of form, it really does just describe her as a, as a person in general, I think. Um, and I think describing her as a citizen of the universe uh, as well as an artist is, is correct. She was just really good at a lot of things. And I, uh, I admire her so much for that and for not having to choose between her family life, um, her human life and her art life, something that I, you know, I hope to aspire to do one day. So that's all I have for you today. Thank you so much for watching this episode on Ruth Asawa. She's one of my favorite artists and I was really excited to do this episode. Um, I'm actually making a special outro just for the podcast for this because the video actually cut out. But um, if you haven't checked out the YouTube channel yet, definitely go and do that. And there will be a transcript available at anint.rest. And you'll be able to find all the links that you need to find in the description of the podcast. And I will see you guys in the next episode. Ciao.